Welcome to Technovation. I'm your host, Peter High. My guest today is Sastri Dervasilo. Sastri is the Chief Information and Client Services Officer of TIAA, a Fortune 100 company that manages $1.2 trillion in assets under management. He has been in his role for a little less than a year, and among his responsibilities are the company's global data and artificial intelligence, global business services, client tech labs, and partnerships across retirement services, Nuveen Asset Management, Wealth Management, and other businesses and subsidiaries. And Sastri serves on the board of TIAA India. He's also on the board of Girls in Tech. Sastri is a seasoned tech exec, having previously been the chief technology and digital officer of McKinsey and Company, and the chief digital officer and chief data and analytics officer of Marsh, as well as the CIO and enterprise head of data and digital at America Express. Sastri, welcome to Technovation. Great to speak with you today. Thank you, Peter. Always my pleasure. Uh, and you know, I love your podcast and learn a lot from them. So happy to be here. Yeah, I'm so so uh, so pleased we'll have a chance to have others learn from from you and your your experience. But first, a quick word from our partner Adyen and the company's chief operating officer, Cameron Zaki. Adyen is a payment platform company that allows businesses to accept e-commerce, mobile, and point-of-sale payments. And Cameron wanted to provide a short overview of what Adyen has to offer. Cameron, over to you. Thanks, Peter. It's one global platform on which you can do many continents and countries, all the relevant payment methods, which vary significantly across different parts of the world to online and physical world or mobile. And we've continued to expand from there. If you go to a dinner party and people ask you what you do and you say this, they're like, that sounds like common sense. Why is it unique? The reality is that a lot of the players who've been around for decades have grown on mainframe computing, releasing once or twice a year, buying other companies, and then they give you one API. But behind the scenes, it's a bit of a spaghetti mess, unfortunately. What IDN did and what we do is sort of really do the backend plumbing that is a little less sexy at times, but really makes the difference in being able to say, hey, it was Peter. Do you know that he you know, shops online and on mobile and in your store and you can recognize him and you can connect all the dots and it's not just enabling the payment, but it's, hey, how do you factor that into loyalty and marketing and all kinds of other use cases? Thanks, Cameron. And now on to the interview. Well, let's begin, uh, Sastri, with your role uh, and, and, and actually more specifically your company. We'll, go get, we'll get to your role in a moment. Um, I, I offered a, just the, the briefest of thumbnail sketches of TIAA. In your own words, take a few minutes, if you wouldn't mind, and uh, describe uh, the, the the breadth of TIA's business, please. Yeah, thank you, Peter. So uh, TIA was founded uh, over 100 years ago by Andrew Carnegie to provide retirement solutions and for you know people who serve others to retire with dignity. Uh, so our, uh, our uh, main focus is providing lifetime income for everyone with investments that make the world better. So that has been... Um, the motto of the firm and uh, it's the Fortune 100, as you mentioned. And at the highest level, our primary businesses are the retirement services, uh, which we provide in higher ed, in, in, in healthcare and nonprofit and other sectors. Uh, we are also trying to get active in the institutional side of the house. Um, global asset management, which as you mentioned, you know, we have a large uh, portfolio uh, of AUM, um, $1.2 trillion plus um, assets under management. We also have a wealth management business and a number of adjacent businesses, you know, that make our goal of providing lifetime income for all happen. So, well, we're a big believer in investing uh, to make the world better. So we have been a pioneer institution in that space, be it ESG or 
uh, you know, some of the alternatives, uh, you know, to, to make the world better. So that's been the focus of the firm and also very diverse uh, and inclusive employer, uh, you know, with a number of uh, industry recognitions. Uh, so that's, uh, that's TIA in a nutshell. That's fantastic. Thank you for that overview. Uh, I mentioned in the intro, you're the chief information and client services officer and uh, an unusual combination of responsibilities suggested by that title. Take a moment and talk about the two sides of it, if you would, and expand on your purview a little bit. Yeah, so the chief information officer side is, um, uh, you know, pretty classic role. So I lead global technology for all the businesses. Uh, so that includes uh, the individual uh, unit CIOs for the various businesses that I just talked about, as well as uh, the enterprise technology shared services, be it information security, data and artificial intelligence, analytics, etc., uh, partnerships that we are forging with a number of institutions and strategy and architecture. So that's the like classic uh, CIO role globally. Um, and then on the client services side, I have all the front office, middle office, back office functions of the firm that serve the clients. So all the way from our national contact centers that take the calls from our participants or plant sponsors as they call us to a number of functions in the middle and back office, like uh, fraud management and fraud operations or risk uh, centric uh, operations and money movement uh, in the back end, et cetera. So um, it's actually pretty unique in the sense that, you know, I get to build solutions on the technology side that are used by my colleagues on the other side of my organization, you know, that serve the client. So you can really see what we are building here. Uh, coming to the point of contact with our clients as they call. Um, just at a very high level, um, our client base includes plan sponsors, which are the big institutions that we work with, uh, whether it's higher ed or healthcare, et cetera, nonprofits. Uh, it includes participants that are the employees of these uh, institutions. And then we also work with plan consultants that are the advisors for these plan sponsors that devise these programs. So those are like the three primary, uh, you know, clients that I serve through my organization from a retirement perspective, obviously, from an asset management, we have different set of clients that we serve on the client services side. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you highlight the, the different levels of clients that you have, Sastri. No doubt there are different uh, facets to what you deliver for them based upon how they define value. Uh, and, and of course, there's a symbiosis across those different uh, layers of clients, uh, um, one serving the other and so forth. But I wonder how you think a little bit about that as what you're delivering with them, how you collaborate with them to elicit from them their needs, uh, you know, their pain points, et cetera, that you might address. Uh, talk a bit about uh, that process, if you would. Yeah, it's a great uh, framing, right? Because you have uh, basically the B2B side, which is our primary business, uh, which is plan sponsors, our institutions on the asset management side. Then we have B2B2C, where we are actually dealing with the participants um, and then we have B2C, you know, in, like in wealth management advice, et cetera. So, um, so that's one, uh, one side of the, uh, you know, constituents that we have to, you know, think about as we devise solutions. The other side is generations. We have, uh, you know, folks who are uh, accumulating uh, for retirement income. So they're um, on the accumulating phase. Then we also have generations of participants that are decumulating so that they have retired and you know they are actually now working on the lifetime income and availing the lifetime income. And it's it's multiple generations. So 
And as, as we know, uh, the technology has changed a lot in the last few decades, and it will change a lot more in the next few decades. So how do you devise solutions that are appealing to the younger uh, generation that is embarking on the retirement journey and the generation that is actually availing uh, retirement you know, income, uh, and then forecast for the future as the younger generation becomes the future retirees. And um, uh, so, and the fintech uh, ecosystem is also changing quite a bit. So there are two primary genres of, of you know, fintech in this uh, ecosystem. Retire tech, which is where we're focused on like building those solutions for retirement accumulation. And then silver tech, where, you know, people are focused on decumulating. So I think if you think about it, different generations, uh, different uh, constituents, and also comes with uh, a 100-year-old company, different processes and contracts that were forged over time. So a lot of complexity, a lot of technical debt, a lot of data debt, a lot of experiential debt one has to deal with while you know we're envisioning the future. So that's what makes it really interesting. Uh, so my organization's, you know, the mission statement for my organization is power the business strategic shifts, fuel the innovation while transforming the core. Uh, so the transforming the core is as important uh, and complex as fueling innovation and you know powering them some of these strategic shifts of providing lifetime income, delighting our clients, and strengthening how we operate. And the core fixing the core being a foundational element to ensure that you can innovate. Right, without doing that, then you you will by definition be limited in terms of what you might do on the innovation side. I like the way you frame that. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. And I wondered, how is your uh, team organized, if you don't mind my asking, Sastri? You mentioned the, the two sides of, of your sets of responsibilities. Are there other members of your team like yourself who who uh, operate on both sides? Are they fairly um, d- discrete, distinct uh, teams under you? How, how is that organized? Yeah, so the way we've organized, um, we have the unit CIOs uh, that are facing off to the business uh, CEOs. So the wealth management uh, CIO sits at the CEO of wealth management, asset management, and retirement services, right? So uh, those are focused on those primary businesses. Same thing with our client services uh, side of the house, where our client services officers are serving the specific business units. Uh, but then we have the horizontals like information security or data and AI, architecture, uh, you know, these uh, infrastructure, obviously, and cloud, they are uh, horizontal. So they serve all these different business units. So that's my organizational grid. So we have, you know, verticals and horizontals. Yeah. Very, very interesting indeed. I appreciate that overview. Um, I wanted to ask, you've talked about uh, TIA and where it operates, the, the the various businesses you operate in. You talked about the B2B aspects of what you do, the B2B to C, as well as the B2C. Really interesting, uh, those points of differentiation. Talk a little bit further, if you would, about TIAA's strategy as a whole and the role that you see uh, your team playing in driving that forward. You've, you've begun to elicit some of that, but I'd love to get a little deeper into some of that conversation, if you don't mind. Yeah, so at the highest level, you know, TIA is focused on delivering lifetime income uh, and delighting our clients and strengthen how we operate. And uh, from a client services and technology point of view, uh, which is uh, my organization, you know, we're focused on obviously powering those strategic shifts and fueling innovation while transforming the core. And the way we've organized our strategy on a page is through six pillars. Uh, so the first pillar is client-obsessed products and services, both on the technology side as well as uh, on my client services uh, side of the house. And this is 
to provide, you know, whether it's 403B solutions and products in the higher ed and healthcare markets, or on the 401k side that we are getting very active on from a retirement perspective, as well as, you know, wealth management and asset management and so forth. So I think that's where, you know, we're focused on building those next generation products and services. Second is digital um, first. So how do we uplift a, you know, heritage company into the new gen to provide the next generation of uh, digital uh, solutions and experiences working closely with our newly appointed um, uh, chief digital and client experience officer, Jessica Austin. Um, and then uh, powering the enterprise through an integrated data and AI strategy. So I recently hired um, a chief data and AI officer uh, who's focused on that, you know, to build the next generation of the data foundation and providing AI solutions uh, to create those experiences for our plan sponsors and participants. Um, and then building the talent and culture that we need to operate uh, effectively, you know, in this space uh, for all the different constituents I mentioned earlier and strengthen how we operate. Uh, we also want to do this with a best of breed ecosystem. So that that operates on a build by partner model. So we definitely want to build for differentiation, but we also want to buy and partner for parity. Uh, while I do that, obviously I have to uplift um, the technology ecosystem, uh, which is a which is a big job for our our teams. Uh, we have to uplift our data ecosystem. We have to be secure by design. You know, with the emergence of a number of cyber threats. So, um, so that's the focus and strategy for my organization when it comes to you know powering the strategic ships we have at TIA. Great overview. I really appreciate that, uh, Sastri. The data and AI component, I'd love to double click on that for a moment, if you don't mind. Two topics of great interest uh, to your yeah. peer group uh, and certainly an area of, of great emphasis uh, for you and your team, as you noted. Um, talk a bit about, and you just mentioned the fact that you're at, you're building out your data ecosystem, that this is uh, something that is uh, no, no single company can accomplish alone, but bringing in great partners who can help fill in gaps where those might be uh, for the reasons that you described. Uh, I, I'd, I'd be interested in your, your perspectives on the development of your data strategy and as a consequence, the, the means by which you're leveraging artificial intelligence for value today. Yeah, so the data ecosystem, you know, any large company of heritage by nature has different technologies. You can almost predict that we have technology tools from every quadrant of Forrester or Gartner uh, that, you know, you would expect to see a lot of different data villages that were built over time for custom solutions. So that's the landscape that we're starting from. But the advantage we have is because we have been at this for a long time. Uh, and we are a highly regulated firm, we do have a number of data assets that actually are uh, within the firewalls of TIA that we can we can capitalize on. So um, Dr. Swati Singh, who joined my leadership team as the chief data and AI officer, that's uh, her, her and her team's focus. You know, how do we bring all the data, you know, from our global data assets and build that platform? Um, while we do that, obviously, we want to be cloud first as we do so. Uh, we want to leverage open source tools, but more importantly, we want to have some killer use cases that are powered by AI for the specific uh, constituents that I talked about earlier. So as an example, we forged a strategic partnership with Google, um, Google AI, uh, that we are now um, actively deploying solutions in our client services um, area because that's under my purview. It's made it very easy to deploy it and it, it deploys at scale. So. We're using conversational AI solutions when the participants call in 
to minimize the wait times, to do a level of intelligent automation to serve them. Because a lot of them um, that call us, even if we prompt the participants to go to the web or mobile app, they just want us, they, they want to do it on the phone uh, because they're comfortable doing it on the phone. So how do you create a level of solutions that enable that for them, but with less friction? Uh, so that's where the AI you know, comes to play. So a number of use cases that we are actively you know, uh, developing. The advantage we have is we also develop a client tech labs, which is on a multi-cloud, hybrid cloud environment, uh, where we can actively pilot some of this in beta testing, work with clients to co-innovate with them and deploy the solutions in beta and see how you know, people feel about it. And then we can productionalize it at scale. So that's the other thing that we are doing to have some flexibility and working with different institutes as we do so. But data, undoubtedly, you know, it's it's a big asset for any firm. And, uh, you know, I'm a data geek at heart, you know, with a lot of patents in this space and so is Swati and others on the leadership team. So we're quite passionate about uplifting that foundation and, and creating those use cases. And part of uplifting a foundation is building a great team. And I know you've thought creatively about partnerships to develop in order to identify qualified people to join the IT team, as well as to give them uh, opportunities for further training and advancement. Talk a bit about some of the creative partnerships you've developed with, with universities and, and, and other institutions to help in that way. Yeah, I think the main advantage we have is, you know, we all, we work very closely day in and day out with universities, right? Because they are our clients and that's who we serve and as they serve others. Uh, so we really want to have a different level of engagement and conversation with the academia. So as an example, we have a partnership with NYU or UNC where, you know, where we have launched programs and we have over 47 or 48 now cyber graduates um, that are going to be graduating from NYU, employees of our own that are actually going through this uh, you know, coursework. Uh, we have something similar at UNC, but we also have um, a very robust internship program. As an example, the, the ClientTech Labs that I mentioned earlier, we've had uh, over almost 100 uh, interns actively you know, hacking in our ClientTech Labs and coming up with solutions. And some of them uh, the winners uh, opted to actually continue with us, uh, you know, during their semesters as well. So that's some of that, you know, strategic advantage we have to build that level of talent pipeline is, um, is, is you know, it's quite satisfying actually to see how that's evolving. Um, at the same time, we're quite active in uh, industry forums, like Ren Isaac, for example, on the cyber front, which is the research and educational network, uh, where we actively contribute uh, to the you know, same thing we do with obviously financial services, FSI, et cetera. So we are an active participant and contributor. That's one leg of our partnerships. Um, the second leg is really uh, taking uh, a diverse and inclusive workforce. Uh, and how do we partner in that space? So um, I have a leader on my leadership team who's focused on forging these uh, technology partnerships, uh, Taisha Smith. And, and we've created this role to actually elevate our impact. Uh, as an example, we have partnerships with uh, Black Syntech. We have partnerships with Afrotech. We have partnerships with Society of Hispanic Professional Engineers, Society of Women Engineers, Girls in Tech, and the list goes on. And because we really want to create those pipelines of partnership where we can give opportunities, where we can train the next generation. As an example, at the most recent Black Syntech conference, Bitcoin 22, our team went and did an AI workshop. Uh, and so, and same thing, you know, with girls in tech, we have been doing a number of workshops. I think 
that's what really makes it you know very powerful right because then you you can have a two-way street with these partners and give them opportunities work with them to make a bigger impact uh, so that's the second thing and then the last thing is we work very closely with the clients uh so when it comes to client for innovation on emerging technology and research projects with faculty and their students uh you know that because you know that's that's what we do you know for 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 our business so we open that up and especially you know with client advisory councils that we have we open doors for our clients where faculty and students can come and do co-research with us and partner with us on a number of things uh and that's you know that's really exciting because it not only adds more talent to our pipeline but opens the dialogue with our clients in a different way for impact that's re really remarkable and so smart for you to uh to leverage the network of, of your clients uh, in some really creative ways uh, that yeah. add value in both directions. Yeah. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, girls in tech uh, among the, the the groups that you're affiliated with. Um, you were on the board of that organization, as I men mentioned in the introduction. Uh, talk a little bit about that that uh, relationship and why what what you've uh, brought to it and, and gained from it. Why it's important to you. Yeah, Girls in Tech, uh, I have been with Girls in Tech for several years now, uh, almost six, seven years. Uh, so I've had the opportunity to learn and benefit from uh, the wisdom of the board, as well as, you know, the founder, Adriana, um, who started this, you know, uh, several years ago with a few thousand people in the West Coast. Now it has grown almost to 100,000 members across 50 different countries. So I've had the privilege to work with her and the leadership team and the broader chapters to grow the impact of girls in tech. So a lot of focus on empowerment, a lot of focus on creating learning and career opportunities, a lot of focus on communication and networking, a lot of focus on mentoring. So I do a lot of uh, these activities. And it's it's fascinating to see how the dialogue has opened up in the last several years. We still have a lot of work to do on gender diversity, no question about it. In any industry, technology actually is probably the most pronounced one, but um, I am quite excited about it. I'm super um, proud to say that more than 50% of my direct reports are women in technology. Uh, and uh, obviously, there's a lot of work that goes into it to make sure that we have a diverse and inclusive uh, leadership team, because that sets the tone for the rest of the organization. But at the same time, we're equally focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion in the broader context. As I mentioned, you know, we have partnerships with a number of these institutes. Uh, whether it's you know blacks in tech or society of hispanic professional engineers a lot of work with lgbtq plus um so i think the dialogue is happening peter but um you know i just i see that from both sides by the way not just technologies from a business point of view this is an important element of our business focus we launched an initiative earlier this year called retire inequality so if you think about like women retirement uh there is a parity issue so women it Based on statistical analysis, it's proven that women retire with 30% less. Um, so how do you close that gap? So we have a number of initiatives, you know, we have strategic partnerships in that space as well for this uh, major event that we launched um, and set of initiatives for retire inequality. We've engaged a number of athletes on this to get the word out. But so you need, as I talked about, client-obsessed products and services. I need the team that is diverse to actually think about you know, closing that gap, right? So that's where I think the 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 connection really happens, you know, because we are a mission-driven, purpose-driven firm, right? So retired inequality is a big focus for us. Obviously, the focus on gender um, equality in technology, you know, and client services helps close that gap.
Hey, a very, very interesting overview. I appreciate you you sharing the the substance of that and the great work that you're you're doing in order to bring about some of that change. I wonder also, speaking of boards, you're also as uh, on the TIAA India board, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your your operation in India and uh, your relationship to that. Yeah, so TIA um, Global Business Services is uh, primarily based in India. So we have a CEO, which is um, Ondrala Majumdar, and she just got appointed. Uh, she's actually part of my leadership team, so she's part of my leadership team, and um, and and it's a it's a business uh, global business services is a global capability center for all of TIA, so it provides uh, capabilities and uh, teams for not only technology and client services, but for risk, for people, for legal, for finance, for our core businesses across the various business units. So. That entity, um, you know, um, is obviously operating as a legal entity within within India, and uh, I'm on the board of uh, that entity amongst others. Uh, and our focus is really to scale that entity to be the powerhouse from a global business services point of view for all of TIA globally. Because you know, our, especially on the asset management side, we are a very global institution, right? So under time, and obviously a lot of our focus is in the U.S., but we need uh, augmentation with capabilities and and uh, technology capacity and client services capacity. So that's what our GBS teams do. That makes sense. Well, we've talked across this conversation, Sastri, about a, a, a number of rising trends, trends you're taking advantage of. Uh, I wonder if there are others, as you look to the future, that particularly excite you. What what comes to mind as you reflect on that? Yeah, definitely. You know, one leg of that is technology trends, uh, you know, I often quote uh, this quote from Bill Gates, which is one of my favorite quotes. Uh, we always overestimate the change that's going to happen in the next two years and underestimate the change that's going to happen in the next 10 years. Uh, so as we look back now, you know, 15 years ago, iPhone was released and 20 years ago, uh, BlackBerry phone was released and look where we are, right? So the world has uh, world has changed quite a bit. So, uh, So I think, you know, What's going to happen in the next two years? There's a lot of hype on a number of things, be it generative AI or metaverse or broader Web3 technologies, et cetera, um, that we could get carried away or quantum computing. But I fundamentally believe that over time, they will become mainstream. So we may not see the immediate impact as is predicted in a number of these hype curve uh, predictions. But I am fully convinced that 10 years from now, we will be talking about every one of those as mainstream topics. Uh, and we serve generations after generations from a retirement perspective. So we have probably the most long range uh, acumen from a business point of view, because you know our focus is to provide that retirement income to the participants, right? So, so uh, as I said, you know, in our client tech labs, we are focused on a number of these emerging technologies. Some of them are quite useful today, like applied AI, as I talked about conversational AI. I'm a big believer in generative AI, so I do think that there's going to be more immediate use cases. But then will be engagement use cases, especially you know with the Gen Zs from a metaverse point of view, as things kind of emerge from there, or other um, applications or risk management and fraud predictions in quantum, you know, leveraging the power of quantum. Um, so that's one. But um, I am also equally focused on ethics. So AI ethics is a big, um, obviously discussed area and uh, data ethics in general, um, as well as cyber. So the threat landscape is changing a lot. Uh, so, you know, with some of these new universes happening and opening up, 
the threat landscape changes even further. Uh, so that's that's one uh, trend set of trends that I'm focused on and my team is focused on. We are actively piloting. But then the other trend is talent. So we talked a little bit about talent, obviously here, but. I think the talent trend is an important one to observe because that's changing in front of us, especially post-pandemic in the new hybrid, new normal. There are new patterns that we are coming to see. And again, you know, like the other examples I gave on the tech 10 years from now, when we look back, we'll be like, oh, wow, 10 years ago, people used to work that way. <laughs> uh, they don't work that way anymore, right? So I think the talent trend is also uh, an important one. And that takes me to the third one, which is culture. So how do you drive inclusion in this new world that we all live in? Uh, what are the new micro nuances that we should be observing, especially you know when you lead large organizations? You know I have the responsibility of almost sixty percent of colleagues at TIA fall in my organization, organizational remit. So what are the different trends there in terms of culture, and you know what's the next generation of uh, you know culture going to look like, especially in a technology organization, and how do you kind of forge that? you know, better in a hundred year old company. So those are the trends that I, that are on my radar, uh, you know, that's, that I'm excited about. I, I love, love the overview and I lo love your perspective on, uh, recognizing that long-term, some of those things that uh, one might be pessimistic about the hype, uh, may still come to pass. And so, uh, remaining in the game and testing yeah. these ideas and, and ensuring that you at least are developing, uh, uh, perspectives based upon some of that experimentation, it becomes so much more important. Um, Sastri, I also wanted to ask you a bit about your the secrets to your success. Uh, you rose very quickly in your career to become a chief uh, at, at American Express. Uh, you've had uh, additional chief responsibilities, executive roles at Marsh, at McKinsey & Company, of course, now at TIAA, where we've uh, most of our conversation is focused, needless to say. Uh, you know, as you as you uh, reflect on your rise to executive roles, what have been some of the difference makers along the way? And I, I like this question generally because of the possibility for some of our younger listeners uh, who may have ambitions to walk in your footsteps, uh, providing them some of the counsel as to the things they might do uh, to emulate some of your success would be particularly interesting. No, thank you, Peter. I mean, I used to do this. I was a coder and I still love to code as a passion. Um, so... Obviously, my team won't let me put anything in production. <laughs> Disclaimer. <laughs> uh, the three L's that I always talk about, right? The first L um, is um, learning. So I'm intentional about my learning. So, uh, and that's a tough thing to do, but that has, that has helped quite a bit. Being a lifelong learner is one thing, but being intentional about it. Every conversation I have, I try to apply, okay, what am I learning in this conversation as part of my learning objective? So that... And I talk a lot about intentional learning uh, and the frameworks that actually one of obviously my former employer McKinsey came up with. Uh, so I'm quite um, serious about intentional learning. So that's one. The second thing that helps a lot for me and that helped a lot that I talked about is listening. Um, and I think that's the most underrated leadership skill. <laughs> uh, that's the most underrated aspect of communication. So active listening and listening for the cues, especially in this you know, new normal that we live in, uh, I think is an important uh, secret. Uh, and I, I, you know, for the audience who are younger in their tenures and who have bigger ambitions, I can't emphasize enough the importance of listening. Um, and then the third is leading uh, while being accessible, uh, which is a hard thing, you know, as you grow in your career, you know, large organizations form, how do you connect with every level? 
so that you feel equally accessible. Uh, and obviously, it's more easy to do now uh, than before, because in the past, one would have to literally walk the floors. And that's pretty hard when you have global teams. But you know whether it's on Slack or Teams or wherever, whatever your medium of communication is, it's very easy now to be accessible, right? So leading while being accessible. Uh, to me, those are the three L's that I, I, I strongly believe in. Obviously, being hands-on, being inclusive, being an ally. Um, and another secret that has helped quite a bit for me is I do a lot of mentoring, but I do a lot of reverse mentoring as well. Um, so, and that helps tremendously. You know, when you sit across the table or on a Zoom call like this with a 17-year-old trying to tell you how you should think about, uh, you get a lot of aha moments. I have one obviously at home, <laughs> a teenager son, uh, who tells me that every day, but that just opens up you know, and a different canvas to think about and, and how ready or unready I am, you know, for, for the next generation. And that definitely helps me a lot. May, may I ask you just on that last one, what, what are some of the ways in uh, for those reverse mentoring? I can only imagine that at least the first conversation, once uh, there's a cadence to it, uh, no doubt it becomes more natural. But I can imagine an organization is large as yours uh, with a role, a title, uh, forget who you are for a moment, but just the title you have, that it would be intimidating for somebody who's uh, quite a bit younger uh, for you to be sort of counseling you. What are some of the ways in that you found to be particularly uh, effective? Yeah, I think the first thing, as I said, is being accessible. The people fundamentally have to believe that, you know, that you're an accessible person, right? So my team should believe that, okay, this dude is accessible and we can talk to him without worrying about implications. Um, and that is a tough nut to crack. But once you crack that, right, then it's actually once once you say that, once I say, hey, I want to have some reverse mentors, the doors are wide open, right? Because people fundamentally believe that, okay, there is an authentic leader who wants to open up those doors. It, but then how do you have the first conversation? How do you break the eyes, right? I think there is a level of pattern recognition in this subject, but you just have to, like, I try to, get into their shoes, which is very hard, by the way, for me to do, uh, you know, having seen all the different technology movies that I've seen. But uh, once you get to that level of humbleness uh, and, you know, because I can never speak their language the way they do. So it's pretty hard, you know, so just how do you synchronize that conversation? And it's also to a street, right? Because, you know, the, the team members get the exposure. So for example, um, you know, we launched something called TIA uh, Trailblazers series, where I am interviewing people uh, from different levels of their careers, uh, from different backgrounds, and highlighting them as role models uh, for the broader organization. Because I was able to do that, it just opened up doors where people are able to like respond to me, and then now some of them become my you know reverse mentors, right? So, uh, but. You know, especially coming into a new industry and new organization like TIA, there's a lot to learn, even from an institutional point of view, right? So um, that obviously comes from experts who have been at it for a long time. But when it comes to tech, you know, everybody is a teacher and everybody is a student, right? Very well said, Sastri. I, I really appreciate this this great conversation. Having gotten to know you and know how uh, knowing how thoughtful you are. Um, I'm so pleased and not surprised that this conversation fully reflects 
how, how deeply insightful you are and how, how much you think about how intentional you are, not only about your learning, as you pointed out, as an important uh, uh, aspect uh, that each of us need to be mindful of, but intentional about the practices that you put in place. It's, it's really been a great conversation. Thank you, Peter. Always a pleasure. Pleasure catching up with you. And I look forward to other uh, podcasts you're going to do, you know, in my learning series. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Sastri.